a bit of pressure on me to perform. I apparently know what I'm talking about and I can preach, so fingers crossed, as they say in Ireland. Uh, it's good to be with you. As you can hear from the accent, I'm not from around here. Uh, from Northern Ireland originally, but we've been living in Philadelphia for two years. But this is my first time to Florida, so I will always remember this conference because uh, it's my first time here. So thank you for the invitation. It's good to be here. And I've decided to do five talks on the book of Isaiah, uh, or Isaiah, as you say here. <clears throat> but the Hebrew is Isaiah. Okay, that was a joke. Um, okay, so five talks on um, Isaiah, and we're going to look tonight at chapter 1, uh, verse um, uh, 1 to 2, 5, and then we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 6, and I'm just going to step up on this platform, don't worry, I'm not levitating, but uh, the Lord did not bless me with height. Okay, so... Uh, and then tomorrow we'll do two more talks, and then, Lord willing, on the Lord's Day, we will look at Isaiah chapter 40. Somebody has said that Isaiah is the Romans of the Old Testament. In other words, the book of Isaiah is the gospel in its entirety in the Old Testament. Others have said that Isaiah is like the whole Bible condensed into one book. Because the book of Isaiah spans from creation to new creation. The book is bookended with references to the heavens and the earth and to the new heavens and the new earth. And in between, the book is about the gospel story of God saving his people through judgment for the transformation of the world. If you're taking notes, that is the summary sentence of Isaiah. It is about the gospel story of God saving his people through judgment for the transformation of the world. So it is this grand book covering the whole Bible from creation to new creation. And as Isaiah gives us the gospel story between those bookends of creation to new creation, he does so with images. Okay, if you ever got to play Pictionary with Isaiah, you would want him on your team. Okay, because all throughout this book, Isaiah paints these magnificent pictures and uses images frequently. In fact, uh, in this section that we're going to read now, chapter 1, 1 to 2, 5, I've counted 16 different pictures that we're going to see just in this opening chapter. So, let's uh, hear the gospel through pictures. And I'm going to read uh, that portion of Isaiah. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, 
for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore. She was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, 
I will get relief from my enemies and, and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken down together. Those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. And you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, in your light, we see light. And so we pray that you would come now by your Holy Spirit and illuminate the reading and the preaching of your word so that we might see the Lord Jesus in all his glory. And we ask this in his name, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praised. Amen. <clears throat> Reading the book of Isaiah is a bit like watching a plant grow from seed to full flower, or flower, as you say. Okay, From seed to full flower. And this opening section, chapter 1, 1 to 2, 5, is like that seed. It contains all the key information for the rest of the book to develop. Now remember I said that someone has called Isaiah the Romans of the Old Testament. It's the gospel of the Old Testament, the whole Bible in one book from creation to new creation. Well, this opening section gives us the gospel in seed form. And it is played out, the gospel, in the life of Judah and Jerusalem. See that in verse 1? The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, who is this prophet Isaiah? Well, he was a prophet who lived in the 8th century BC, 
he was called to be a prophet in the year 740 BC when King Uzziah died. And we'll see that in our next talk in Isaiah chapter 6. His ministry lasted the reign of four kings. Uzziah on his death, 740. Jotham from 740 to 732 BC. Ahaz, 732 to 716 BC. And Hezekiah, 716 to 687 BC. That was about 50 to 60 years from 740 BC to 687 BC. So this was a prophet with a long ministry. But Isaiah's words that he spoke were not just to his era, to those four reigns of those four kings. His words spoke about things beyond that time. In fact, to the end of history. His message covered the time of the kingdom of Assyria, the kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of Persia, and the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, right up to the end of the world. This is why he is the great prophet among the prophets, uh, the writing prophets in the Old Testament. So he covers four kings and four kingdoms, but he does so against the backdrop of creation to new creation. That's the big panorama that Isaiah gives us. Creation to new creation. And as he does so, he focuses in on the stage. The spotlight comes to one nation, Judah, to one city, Jerusalem. The book of Isaiah is a tale of one nation, one city. Remember, he's writing in the 8th century BC, so the split in the kingdom of Israel has happened. You have the 10 tribes in the north uh, with their capital Samaria, and they're called Israel. And you have the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south, and their capital is Jerusalem. And Isaiah's prophecy is directed to one nation, Judah, to one city, Jerusalem. And the nation and the city are used as a picture. Remember I said he would be good at Pictionary? They're used as a picture of the people of God. Isaiah is about the gospel story of how God will save his people through judgment for the transformation of the world. How he will save the nation of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, through judgment for the transformation of the world. And that is how Isaiah is structured. The whole book, the first half of the book, chapters 1 to 39, is about God's judgment on his people and the nations. The second half, chapter 40 to 66, is about God's salvation of his people and the nations. And here in this opening section, we get a snapshot of that judgment salvation. A snapshot of the whole book in seed form. We get the gospel in the life of Judah and Jerusalem. It's the story of the Jerusalem that was to the Jerusalem that will be. It's the tale of one city. You've heard Charles Dickens' book, the title, The Tale of Two Cities. Well, Isaiah's book, the opening, could be described with a chapter title, The Tale of of one city. 
in two stages. The rebellious stage and the redeemed stage. That's what this opening section is about, the tale of one city. And what transforms the city of Jerusalem from being a rebellious city to being a righteous city is the gospel, the good news of how God saves his people through judgment. And here in this opening chapter, Isaiah gives us six aspects of the gospel, six aspects of the gospel. And as he does so, he gives us, a, he gives us these aspects in images, in pictures, which I'll point out as we go along. So number one, this is the first aspect of the gospel that Isaiah gives us, the problem of our sin, the problem of our sin. Chapter 1, verses 2 to 9. Verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. There's the picture. Rebellious children. Now remember what we're told in verse 1, that Isaiah's vision is focused on Judah and Jerusalem. So we'd expect the vision to open with, Hear, O Judah, give ear, O Jerusalem, right? Because that, it's a vision for Judah and Jerusalem. And yet, no, he calls on the heavens and the earth to listen. God is about to reprimand his children in a courtroom drama. And he calls on the heavens and the earth to come and take their seat in the gallery. That's how high the stakes are here. God is saying, I am, he, he's calling the world to come and watch Jerusalem. Come, O heavens, come, O earth, and watch me judge Jerusalem. Because how Jerusalem responds to my rebuke doesn't just affect them. It affects the whole world. Jerusalem may be a little rump city in a little rump state called Judah. But God is saying, you are no little backwater town, Jerusalem. You are the center of the world. And the well-being of the world is dependent on how you listen to my word. Right from the moment of Sinai. Remember when God called Israel at Sinai? He called them to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. They were to affect the world by being different from the world. They were to be a kingdom of priests mediating blessing to the world. Their obedience in that calling affected the whole world. I wonder if we've ever thought of ourselves like that as a church. The well-being of the world is dependent on how the church listens to God's word. It's dependent on how the church responds to God's gospel each week. Because as we'll see later this evening, God wants to bless the nations through his redeemed people. But if his people aren't responsive to his word, if they're rebellious, then the world can't be blessed. If the kingdom of priests won't act like a kingdom of priests, then there is no blessing for the world. And that's what God says to us this evening in this address. The world is watching you. The world is dependent on how you listen. 
Hear, O heavens. Give ear, O earth. And the first thing that God says to us as the heavens and the earth is watching and listening is, you are like rebellious children, like rebellious adolescents. Here's the first picture that the gospel is communicated in. It's a picture of a father with rebellious children. Here's a father who has loved his children by rearing them, bringing them up. He has not been a passive father. He has not been an absent father. He's been intimately involved in bringing them out of Egypt in conquering the land for them and giving them the land. And yet what is their response? Rebellion. All the R's, all the time, all the love, all the care, and the children have walked away. It's one of the greatest heartaches for any parent, isn't it? The child who walks away, who says, thanks but no thanks for my upbringing. The child who no longer answers the phone calls, who no longer remembers the home address. Yet that is how Judah and Jerusalem have behaved with God here. Their rebellion is so bad, God even contrasts them with stupid animals who know better, who at least know who they are dependent upon. Verse 3, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Israel are worse than a dumb animal. There's another picture of our sin. And then comes the rapid-fire accusation, verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. That's first what they are like, then what they have done. They have forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. God the Father has become God the Judge. And the basis for his accusation is found in that title that he gives himself, a title that Isaiah loves to use of God, the Holy One of Israel. There's the foundation for defining all sin. Of every stripe, of every kind, God's holiness. Sin is first and foremost not a social problem defined horizontally, though it has ramifications horizontally and socially. Sin is a religious problem defined vertically. It is rebellion. It's forsaking. It's despising. It's transgressing the law of God. It's spurning the God who made us, who loves us, who cares for us. It's saying to God, get out of my life. I won't answer your calls. I won't remember where you live. I don't want anything to do with you. And the amazing thing is that when we do sin, it's not so easy to stop it, to repent and to turn around. Because even when we begin to bear the consequences of our sin, what is amazing is that we continue to live in it. We continue to love it, even though we've become sick with it. And that's the next image that Isaiah gives us, verse 5 and 6. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it. 
for bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. You see how God changes the analogy here from a rebellious child to a sick child, a sick adolescent, a patient. And the sickness covers everything. It's the head, the heart, the body, and the sickness lingers. It's not a passing cold. Open wounds which won't heal. Notice how God is using the image. He's using it to show the stubbornness of sin, the hardness of heart when we do sin. God is saying, even when you feel sick with your sin, you continue to live in it. It's like the stubborn child or teenager. I'm sure we all remember it well. We're getting disciplined by your parents. You felt the sting felt the isolation in your bedroom and what was your first thought i will never apologize yeah there we are caught in our sin and what do we want to do we want to keep it going we want to keep the rebellion going it's just a little window into our hearts sin makes us sick it brings consequences on us and yet we would rather go anywhere else than to god to get it sorted. And that's like Judah and Jerusalem. This sickness has come to them as a nation. It's seen in verse 7 in their, in their land. Their country lies desolate. The cities are burned. Foreigners have invaded. Jerusalem is besieged, verse 8. And again, Isaiah gives us this striking image. Jerusalem is like a wooden shack in the middle of a stripped vineyard, a potting shed in the midst of a ravaged cucumber field. Can you just picture it? This whole vineyard just stripped bare, but there's this shack just sitting in the middle. That's like Jerusalem in the middle of the Assyrian Empire. When Assyria came in to invade this part of the world, they ravished the land and they besieged Jerusalem during the reign of Hezekiah. Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, wrote in his annals in his journals how he pinned hezekiah up in jerusalem like a bird in a cage and that's how unhealthy the situation had become for judah in jerusalem this sick adolescent was on the brink of death on the edge of existence and still they would not repent they continued to rebel this is why Sin is the first thing that confronts us in the gospel. Because when we sin, we keep on sinning. And this is where the good news of the gospel begins with the bad news. We've got a major problem. It's our sin. It's our stubbornness to repent of our sin, even when our sin has made us sick. even in the midst of this courtroom scene where God is exposing us with the world watching in the gallery, there's a glimmer of hope. We've seen God as Father. We've seen God as Judge. And now in verse 9, we see Him as Savior. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, another picture. Remember, with Abraham, 
fire comes down out of heaven and just zaps them all and wipes them out, turns them all to ash. There was not one survivor. The rebellious cities that God wiped out in judgment were left without a survivor. But Jerusalem will not be left like Sodom and Gomorrah. There will be a few survivors by the Lord's mercy. He will leave a few survivors. In other words, God will save some people through judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. And that's the point. Given our sin, given our stubbornness to not repent of our rebellion, we can't save ourselves. God must step in and save us. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors. It is God who keeps us from complete and utter destruction when we sin and remain stubborn in our sin. So this is the first aspect of the gospel that Isaiah gives us. It is the problem of our sin. We sin and we get sick with it and we are still stubborn despite our sickness. Second, the futility of our religiosity. The futility of our religiosity, verses 10 to 15. If it takes God to save his people, then his people can't save themselves, even in their religiosity. This is one of Isaiah's big points throughout the whole book. He just keeps the message coming. Don't trust in yourselves, Judah. Don't trust in Egypt. Don't trust in Assyria. Don't trust in Babylon. Trust in the Lord. In this case, in chapter 1, it's don't trust in your religious show. Because, verse 11, God's not interested in our sacrifices and offerings. He takes no delight in them when we keep sinning, yet we keep offering our, our, our offerings. He's not interested in our festivals or Sabbath keeping. He can't bear them, verse 13 and 14. You can keep the Sabbath till the cows come home. But his eyes will be closed to our offerings and his ears will be deaf to our prayers. Verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Here's the second point of the gospel, of the good news that God saves his people through judgment. We have a problem of sin and second, the religious show doesn't cut it. God's not interested in our religiosity. And it was a show for Judah because of what they were ne neglecting to do. They were doing all the Sabbath feasts. They were giving the offerings. They were slaughtering the animals on the altar. But look at verse 17. Look what they were avoiding, neglecting. The fatherless, the widow's cause, oppression, injustice, they had a religious conscience, but they had lost their moral and social conscience. That's what makes for religiosity. Religiously keeping Sunday, socially and morally sleeping Monday to Saturday. It's what God calls hypocrisy. And I think as Christians, as evangelicals, we need to hear that message because historically, we don't know what to do with social justice. We're nervous of it. Uh, I don't know if that's the case in every part of America, but certainly in the UK, uh, if 
you start talking about social justice, evangelicals start getting nervous. They think you're about to veer the church off the road into the social gospel, where the gospel becomes doing good to the poor, to the oppressed, as if that is the gospel. And that is a ditch that we must avoid at all costs. The gospel is not about giving food to the poor. The gospel is about a Savior who died on a cross so that poor sinners could be fed by him. So we mustn't veer the, off the road into that ditch. But there's another ditch on the other side of the road. And Isaiah shows us that ditch here. And it's the ditch of religiosity and hypocrisy. Of religiously keeping Sundays and Lord's Suppers and Thursday night prayer meetings. But socially and morally sleeping Monday to Saturday. Look again at that list in verse 17. And ask yourself if that is at the forefront of your Christian life, of your church life, doing good, seeking justice, correcting oppression, helping the vulnerable, the children, the widows who are oppressed. When the monsoon floods in India happened just a week ago, uh, was your first thought to send some money? I know it wasn't mine. One thing that might help us to understand these kind of commands to Judah is that they were rooted in their redemption from Egypt. The social justice commands of the Old Testament, and there are many of them, are grounded in the redemptive act of rescuing Israel from their oppression, from their slavery, from their fatherlessness. And in the New Testament... Those kinds of social commands are not done away with. In the Old Testament, remember you were slaves in Egypt, so treat the slave well. Remember you were in the wilderness with not much food, so give to the person the gleanings of your field, to the fugitive, to the refugee. And it's there in the New Testament. Jesus says in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Go and do likewise. James says in his book, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep one un oneself unstained from the world. And throughout church history, wherever there's been evangelical missions, what has followed? Social justice. Orphanages. Schools. Hospitals. I was brought up in Tanzania, as Ron said earlier. And all through Tanzania, you will find schools, hospitals started by missionaries, by churches. The gospel comes to a church. It revitalizes the church. And how does it impact society? In social justice. In those who are oppressed. Those who are hungry, receiving food. Charles Spurgeon all heard of Spurgeon. Uh, Spurgeon preached in a church with 6,000 people every Sunday. Uh, what is not known by many is Spurgeon ran some orphanages throughout London. He would use the money from his printed sermons to fund orphanages in London. He preached the gospel and he cared for the oppressed. And that's the road that we're to travel, the road of the social and moral conscience 
There are ditches on both sides of the road. Social gospel on one side, religiosity and hypocrisy on the other side. And when we fall into sin as Christians, we mustn't think that our religiosity is going to get us out of the problem. Our problem is sin, and God says to us here in Isaiah, religion can't save you, especially when it lacks that social and moral conscience. Which brings us to the third point. We've seen the problem of sin. We've seen the futility of religiosity. And third, the call of repentance, verses 16 to 17. Notice these nine rapid-fire commands. And notice the image, the picture that Isaiah gives us of cleansing. Wash yourself. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. It's the picture of having a bath. Uh, it's an image of repentance here in the it's repentance in the image of washing of washing ourselves and then going out dressed in new clothes to go and live in the world correcting injustice and oppression and that's the call to repentance it's not just a prayer you say in church it manifests itself in the way we live our lives out in the world in which we live. So that's the third aspect of the gospel, a call to repentance. And then fourth, the choice of forgiveness or punishment. The choice of forgiveness or punishment, verses 18 to 20. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, it shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. These are some of the most memorable words in Isaiah. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. There's the picture, another picture of a stain remover. In the UK, where we lived in Cambridge, uh, we had this hedge in our back garden, and uh, it grew blackberries in the summer. And as Ben was growing up, we loved to walk along this hedge and pick our blackberries. But Ben being two and a half, three, four, of course, when you squeeze a blackberry in your hands and then rub your hands on your your shirt badly stains uh, your shirt. So he was very good at eating them and just as good at putting them on his shirt. And what do you do when you have this shirt with all these stains on it? Well, you get the stain remover out. You put the stain remover on it. And you try to clean that thing back to its original color. And in the gospel, God comes to us with a promise of the world's best soap the world's best stain remover for sin, he can turn blood-red stains to white like snow, to white like wool. The red here refers back to verse 15 where God accuses Israel of having blood on their hands through their neglect of the helpless. 
verse 21, he speaks of murderers lodging in Jerusalem. And here he is offering them not amnesty, but purity. Snow white, wool white purity. Beautiful picture, isn't it? He's offering them complete and total forgiveness. Now remember, this is the Judah and the Jerusalem who love their sin. And though they are sick with it, they are still stubborn enough not to repent of it. And here he comes and says, Come, let us reason together. Let me take your blood-red sins and make them white as snow. And that's the choice that God offers us in the gospel. The choice of forgiveness. But it's not just one option. It's actually an either-or choice. Do you see that in verse 19? If you're willing and obedient, if you repent and you want forgiven, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. When God comes with his gospel, it's an either-or choice. Do you want forgiveness or do you want punishment? Do you want restoration or do you want destruction? But at this point, we need to ask ourselves a question. Because look back at verse 4. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. And now look again at verse 18. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. You see the tension? Here in verse 4 is God, the Holy One of Israel, who cannot stand sin, who cannot leave sin unpunished. And here he is in verse 18 saying, Come, I'll just wipe them all away. How can a holy God wipe away sin? How can a holy God remain just and punish sin and at the same time forgive the same sin? That's the dilemma that Isaiah presents us with here. And the answer is, how does he do it? Through a judgment that saves. Through a judgment that saves. God can forgive our sins through a judgment for sin that saves us. And that brings us to the fifth aspect of the gospel here. We've seen the problem of sin, the futility of religiosity, the call to repentance, the choice of forgiveness or punishment. And here we have the promise in the gospel of salvation through judgment. The promise of salvation through judgment. Verses 21 to 31. Isaiah is about to show us the change that takes place for Jerusalem. Remember I gave this um, sermon, the title, A Tale of One City. Well, he's about to show us in these verses how Jerusalem moves from being a rebellious city to being a righteous city. But first he reminds us what, Jeru what Jerusalem was. And again, three pictures. The faithful city of Jerusalem, verse 21, had become a prostitute, spiritually promiscuous, off whoring with the gods of other nations. They had become a cheap metal. They'd lost their quality of character. They'd become a bad wine. 
their integrity had been watered down. And again, her Israel's leaders are confronted with their sins. Verse uh, 23, they are rebels, thieves, heartless towards the orphan and the widow. And for all that, God will bring judgment on Judah and Jerusalem, whom he now counts as his enemies. Verse 24, therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you, Judah, against you, Jerusalem. Now the judgment in history was primarily the foreign invasion of other nations. First with Assyria coming in, in about the seventh, uh, eighth, or late 8th century, 722 BC. Assyria comes in and they take Israel in the north out of the land. Uh, and then in the 6th century, a Babylon comes in. 605, 589, 587, 598, 587 BC. And he takes uh, Nebuchadnezzar in three waves. He takes Judah out of the land. But here's the big surprise. This judgment that God is going to bring on Judah through Syria in the north and then Babylon in the south, it's likened to a fiery furnace in which good metal emerges. Remember, he's given the analogy earlier on in verse 22, your silver has become dross. Well, here now he speaks of this judgment of exile in Uh, in an image of cleansing, of purifying. Verse 25, And I will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. In other words, when God comes to judge his people with sin, he does not annihilate them. He purifies them. Yes, they're going to need to go into judgment, into exile. But remember verse 9, there will be some survivors. There will be a new nation with good leaders, a new city with good morals. The city, verse 26, of righteousness. Prostitute city will become pure city. Faithless city will become faithful city. Do you see it? The tale of one city the tale of one city, what Jerusalem was to what Jerusalem will be. And how does that change occur? Through a judgment that saves. By salvation through judgment. That's the two-beat rhythm of Isaiah, the rhythm of judgment salvation. It's there in the two halves of the whole book, chapters 1 to 39, judgment. Chapters 40 to 66, salvation. And it's there in this introduction, which is like a seed of the whole book growing. Judgment, salvation. It's what the whole gospel is about. Judgment, salvation. God saves us through judgment. Because what happens to Judah and Jerusalem here will end up happening to a man from Judah, from Jerusalem, the king, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And through the judgment salvation experience of that king, salvation will be offered to Judah, to Jerusalem, and to all the nations. And we know that king is Jesus Christ.
He's on the cross as the suffering servant of Isaiah. He experienced God's judgment. And coming out of the grave as the true, single, individual remnant, as the sole survivor, he experienced God's salvation. Jesus is the true Israel, the suffering servant who was saved through judgment. And this is how God, the Holy One of Israel, can offer to turn our sins from crimson red to white like snow. Because Jesus received the punishment in our place. And by faith we receive his righteousness. We are saved through the judgment that fell on him. There's the justice. God did punish sin. And we are saved through the righteousness that he lived. That becomes ours. Just as Isaiah predicts, verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. Notice those words, those in her who repent. Ever thought of that as a regular church member? Have you ever thought of the need to continually repent of your sin? Salvation is only for God's covenant people who repent when they are confronted with their sins. We don't just repent, said Martin Luther, the German reformer, at the beginning of our Christian lives. He said the whole Christian life is a life of repentance. When God's word comes to us, God is calling us to repentance. And it's an important question to ask, because if we don't repent of our sins when God speaks to us, then he warns us that there is a terrible judgment coming. Verse 28 and 29, But rebels and sinners shall be broken down, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. They shall be ashamed of the oaks that they desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. Here are more images. Isaiah plays off the image of Judah and Jerusalem's spiritually promiscuous life. Oak trees and gardens were connected to fertility rites, from certain gods. But Isaiah says this kind of idolatrous worship, unrepentant rebels will be like a withering oak, a waterless garden, verse 30. The oak that should be thriving will become dry wood. It will become tinder, just waiting for a spark of a fire to burn it. Verse 31, and the strong shall become tinder and his work a spark and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. There's more imagery from this great poet, painter, artist, Isaiah, to show us that if we reject God's promise of salvation through judgment, if we reject that invitation to come and be forgiven, then what awaits us is judgment. But for those who do accept it, look at what the future holds. Chapter 2, 1 to 5. It's the transformation of the world, which brings us to the sixth aspect of the gospel. We've seen the problem of our sin, the futility of religiosity, the call of repentance, the choice of forgiveness or punishment, the promise of salvation through judgment. And now, fifth, what we see here in chapter 2, 1 to 5 is the transformation of the world. This brings us to how Jerusalem is transformed from the Jerusalem that was to the Jerusalem that will be. Only this time, the news for Jerusalem is better. Uh, The future is bright, not bleak. 
And he shows us this in, uh, with another picture. And he pictures Jerusalem as a mountain. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Now, mountains in the Bible are really important. Um, have you ever thought of Eden as a mountain? So where do rivers originate? Up in the mountains. They flow down, and what does it say? There was a river that flowed from Eden into the garden and then split into four. So Eden and the Garden of Eden was a mountain. It was up in the mountains. Ezekiel 28 tells us that Eden was on a mountain. So Eden was on a mountain, and it's where Adam was called to worship God on a mountain. And then after the flood, where does Noah offer his sacrifices? On a mountain, Mount Ararat. Uh, where does Abraham, where is he called to offer his sacrifice? On Mount Moriah. Where did Israel come out of Egypt to go and worship God? Mount Sinai. Where does Solomon gather Israel with the United Kingdom in the land to worship God? At Mount Zion, Jerusalem, at the temple. All the way through the Bible, you have this uh, uh, sort of unfolding mountain peak worshipping. And that's what Isaiah pictures here. Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the highest mountain in the world where the nations are coming to worship on a mountain. And that's the image that he gives us here. God's kingdom is established through the nations coming to worship the king uh, in his city on a mountain. This mountain is obviously no longer Jerusalem in Israel. Uh, today it is Jerusalem in heaven. Mount Zion, the city of the living God, where Jesus is enthroned as king. How does this passage in Isaiah come to its fulfillment? It comes to its fulfillment in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And he ascends into the heavenly Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. And the word of the Lord, as Isaiah says here, goes out from Jerusalem, that heavenly Jerusalem, as Christ sends his spirit on the day of Pentecost. And what happens? The Jews are converted. Israel is restored. And then the word starts going out to Samaria, to Judea, and then to the ends of the earth. And what is happening when people are being converted from all these different nations? They're not going to Jerusalem anymore, in Israel, and Palestine. They're worshiping God because they are going to the heavenly Jerusalem. The earthly Jerusalem has found its fulfillment when the king ascended on high and sat down. It's what the writer of Hebrews says, but you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, to a festal company of angels, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You've come to God, to Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant. So as the good news spreads out from Jerusalem, as Christ is exalted, the nations are drawn uh, to the magnet of where Christ is seated. But notice how they are drawn, verse 3, as I've said. 
because out of Zion the word of the Lord has gone. And it's from the word of the gospel going out to the nations that the nations are drawn to the heavenly Jerusalem where the king lives. And look at the ultimate result of the word of the Lord going out from Zion. Verse 4, universal peace, transformation of the world, international terrorism and war evaporate. Instead of swords and spears, there are plowshares and pruning hooks. What a beautiful picture. Instruments of war melted down and remade into instruments of sowing and reaping for a harvest. And how does it come about? By the word of the Lord going out from Jerusalem to the nations. And what are we to do in the light of it? Well, verse 5. O Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. We are to live with the end in mind. We are to repent of our sin that has made us sick. We are to accept the offer of forgiveness and the promise of salvation. We are to do good, seek justice, because the world is heading for this universal peace. And the question is, are we going to be a part of this? A part of this company gathering to the heavenly Jerusalem to worship? Or are we going to be like that withering oak in a waterless garden waiting for the fire of God's judgment? And that's the choice that Isaiah presents us with at the very beginning of the book. Who will you be like? Will you be like the rebellious Jerusalem, or will you be like the righteous Jerusalem? And God says to all of us tonight, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this magnificent book of Isaiah. We thank you for how it encompasses the whole of the gospel uh, in this book and in this opening section. And we pray, Father, that you would help us uh, not just to understand this intellectually and to see these aspects of the gospel, but I pray, Father, that you would give us a renewed love for you, our Savior, and for your Son who lived and died and rose again and ascended, who went through the judgment so that we might be saved. We pray, Lord, that you would deepen our love for him. We ask this in his strong name. Amen.